0: alt alt, alt,
1: alt
2: Yeah, this is a good place to get this tattoo. Oh, I thought it a place to get tattoos on your arm. Yeah, I've actually wanted to get this tattoo for a long time. Oh, cool. Uh, spray can with the... Word Ubik on it and the spray coming out facing my heart. Ubik is the oh name of uh, one of my favorite Philip Kiddick books. Have you ever read any Philip Kidick?
3: Nope.
2: Most of the books are pretty hard to explain, and uh, Ubik's definitely not an exception, but it's basically about this guy, Joe Chip. Whose world starts disintegrating and falling apart? Oh, Joe is uh, a tester for uh, an anti-psionic league, which is in the future. You know, you have all the, the precogs and the psychics messing with normal people's lives. So you know, there's agencies out there to combat them, and uh, Joe works for that agent, one of those agencies. And uh, what happens is the team. They're on this big assignment, and an explosion goes off, and they're ambushed, and, and the boss, Glenn Runketer, ends up getting killed. So they they, they throw the boss, Glenn Runketer, in, in cold pack. In this future, it's discovered that when you die, you're not really dead. You still have some life left in your brain if you're put into storage, and you know your relatives and friends can come talk to you through a little microphone device to your... your uh, uh... suspended animation So they get the boss into this cold storage and they try to see if there's a signal and uh... joe and his colleagues start noticing that the world's disintegrating around them like they would buy some cigarettes and they'd, they'd crumble in their hands, they'd get some cream for the coffee and it would be sour and uh... all of a sudden the phone book is like three years out of date and the money starts going out of date, so obviously Something is going on, and oh, they finally figure it out in the bathroom when they see some uh, writing on the lavatory wall that says, "Jump in the urinal and stand on your head. I'm the one who's alive. You are all dead." And and it's a message from their boss, who you know the guy they put in the cold storage, because basically it turns out that they're the ones that are all dead in cold storage. And their boss is on the outside world trying to talk to them. And uh, it's very distressing for them to learn this from graffiti in the bathroom, but that's the only place the boss was able to get in touch with them. And uh, I love that phrase, too. I'm the one who's alive, you're all dead. And I tried to spray paint that myself on a bathroom in Germany once, but I got caught and yelled at in German. It's very distressing. So there's kind of two forces going on here. You have the force of decay, and entropy, everything falling apart. And you have the force of good, which is Glenn Runcater trying to fix things. And he tells Joe Chip, our hero, that the only way he's gonna be able to fight the forces of decay and destruction is to get a can of Ubic. <laughs> and Ubic is, is some substance that, it, that exists in a spray can that if you spray it on things, everything will go back to normal. A little spray of Ubic will, uh, will, will fix everything. And, and for me this always resonated with me because, well, you know, who wouldn't want a, a spray can to, oh, to fix things that are falling apart in your life? Well, now you always got it. As directed, Ubik provides uninterrupted sleep without morning-after grogginess. You awaken fresh, ready to tackle all those little annoying problems facing you. Do not exceed recommended dosage.
0: There are over 50 books by Philip K. Dick on my bookshelf but the one I always find myself reaching for whenever I'm in need of something to keep myself from slashing my wrists, stuffing my gullet with pills, or laying down on the garage floor with a car turned on. Interesting fact, Philip K. Dick once tried doing all three of these things simultaneously. But anyway, whenever I find my universe falling apart, I reach for Ubik.
2: Perk up pouting household surfaces with new Miracle Ubik, the easy-to-apply, extra-shiny, non-stick plastic coating entirely harmless if used as directed. Saves endless scrubbing, glides you right out of the kitchen.
0: My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is the Theory of Everything. This week, we're making a case for Philip K. Dick. Today, it's no longer necessary to argue that Philip K. Dick deserves mainstream recognition. He's already got it. He's taught in major universities, name-dropped in all the important book reviews, and most of his stories and novels are optioned by the big Hollywood studios. Thanks to his dedicated followers, Philip K. Dick is and will always be a major writer, a canonical figure of American literature. The case that we're pushing on the radio program this week is for the canonization of Philip K. Dick, The Saint, For Ubik is just one of many literary inventions that Philip K. Dick has left for us to aid us in the never-ending battle against death, decay, and destruction. Ubik is about one of his many guidebooks that teach us how to live in a universe that is now, more than ever, falling apart.
2: I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns. I made the worlds. They go as I say, they do as I tell them. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am, I shall always be.
0: A few days after I got my Ubik tattoo, I was struck by the idea that I certainly couldn't have been the only one so inspired. So I googled Ubik tattoo and dick Up popped the writer, Jonathan Lethem. Obviously, it was a sign, for Jonathan Lethem, author of the best-selling novels Motherless Brooklyn and Fortress of Solitude, spent the good part of the 1980s as, in his words, a lieutenant in the cult of Philip K. Dick. So, I decided to telephone him up. Now, in most cases, a telephone call from someone claiming to have the same tattoo as you should probably be ignored. But, well, Jonathan Lethem understood where I was coming from. In fact, he knows firsthand how, in the world of Philip K. Dick, the desire for contact is not something to be taken lightly.
4: When I was in college, when I first began college in 1982. I, I, was, I had this fantasy that I would drop out and run away to California, where I'd never been, and and meet Philip K. Dick and sort of present myself to him, because I felt that I was... Uh, I had to be. I had to make contact with this this guru. I was kind of like you know, Flaky Funt in the Mister Natural comic books that Art Crum drew. I thought I had to go to the feet of the master. But um, I didn't get my chance. Dick died uh, uh, in 1982, which was just just when I was 18 and just beginning to think I I could I could you know make this uh, make this pilgrimage. So um, a couple of years later. Uh, I went to california anyway and i and I managed to make contact with Paul Williams, who was running the the philip k dick estate and and uh, something called the philip k dick society and I just thought this was the next best thing so i I made myself into the official you know uh envelope liquor stamp stamp liquor uh, editorial gopher for for the uh, for the philip k dick society and um, did everything I could to involve myself in in this uh what wasn't at that point a very grassroots attempt to revive his uh literary career or in a way to create his literary career for the first time because he was even when he was publishing and and many of his books were in print they were in a form that was regarded as so marginal so sub literary um he he might as well have not published he was so marginal because of course for those who cared about him. He was already a great writer, and I felt that way i didn 't know that much about the quote unquote literary mainstream at that point i didn 't care that much about it i I thought anyone who picked up one of his books would recognize that he was a great writer and and since I knew a lot of people who had done that that he probably you know i sort of mistook myself and and a small band of other people for a consensus
2: so back in the day before Philip Kiddick became famous, there was you know, legions of of underground fans who would sometimes refer to themselves as dickhead. It was quite a spirited movement, and I'm wondering if you could share with us a glimpse of what this cult was like.
4: Well, legions is probably uh, an exaggeration. If there had been legions, um, it wouldn't have been, you know, kind of a mimeographed newsletter sort of subculture. There were really just hundreds of people who felt so struck by their encounter with this guy's writing that in that murky period, just before and just after his death, uh, when so much of his work, almost all of it was out of print, these few of us began sort of clamoring for more attention and you know uh, wanting to get books back in print. And I mean, that's really what it was, was a kind of indigenous, literary, tribal organization. There's an element of, of there's a messian, messianistic impulse that Dick writes about, Dick experienced himself, very vividly for 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 better and worse in his own life experience, and which he inspires very readily in readers and so there was a feeling of of having a message that we wanted to bear into into the world you know here 's this group of books here 's this career here 's this strange writer, um, but it was also in a way here 's this language for describing what 's so absurd and and infuriating about. Um, contemporary reality, and it's a better language. It's a it's a more telling one, and you know it will create this feeling of recognition or enlightenment in readers if they encounter it. And so it does have a little bit of a tang of of a kind of um, missionary work, and we certainly had a missionary zeal. But I think there's something really fascinating about writing or art in general that creates uh, intrinsically a feeling of um, private communion in the in the in the in the reader, where, or in the in the audience member, where what you feel is, well, only I understand this guy. He's writing just for me, you know. Even if other people may know about him, I'm having a more personal encounter. I'm having, um, I'm 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 receiving a secret, um, a secret decoder message for my you know, for my secret decoder ring, and um, and Dick does provide this, no matter how many people uh, become. Uh, you know, members of the cult. It still is a cult in a funny way. I mean, I think that there are comparisons for that in other realms. I always think that Devo, um, the, the rock band Devo was a great example of this. That even when they, you know, would have number one or top ten hits like Whip It, they still, the, the message that, that they sent out, the language that they used, the iconography of their, of their band and its, its critique of, of, of everyday reality, meant that everybody who, who liked Devo felt that only they really understood and that everyone else wasn't quite getting it.
2: Well, I think when, when we talk about Philip K. Dick and, and people not quite getting it, it's movies like The Matrix or the, the Truman Show where they're taking this sense that, you know, reality might not be what it seems and then if you peel it back, you'll discover the real reality. That seems
4: to me, you know, not getting it. But that's a classic instance of someone's, Um, greatest, you know, insight being boiled down for a kind of um, commercially palatable presentation. I mean, you're you're exactly right. Those things feel very much like they're um, indebted to Philip K. Dick, if not, you know, overly indebted to Philip K. Dick to the point where you feel that he's been uh, grave robbed a little bit, but they also feel absolutely inadequate or absolutely um, paltry beside his actual work, you know, if, if Philip K. Dick had written The Matrix or Tr- The Truman Show, those would have been basically like the first chapter of one of his novels. Um, what Dick discovered, I almost said understood, but I'm not even sure he understood it because it was a more of a, it was really more an in, in, intuitive or emotional um, discovery, was that the search is never finished, and he'd take an idea. What we now, I think, could could safely say is a kind of Dickian idea, like like the ones that are the premises for those two films you mentioned. And he would start out writing that idea, but he would the restless part of him would be unsatisfied with the obvious answer that you know behind the Truman Show lies, you know, the manipulative corporation. And he would turn it another degree, and then another degree, and he'd keep peeling away the levels so that you would end up instead of in a kind of pat. Um, mystery story where there's a series of, you know, esoteric clues that give way to a, a satisfying um, finale where, you know, let's say, you know, Tom Cruise gets to, uh, you know, confront Max von Sydow and bring the corporation tumbling down. Uh, you'd discover that Max von Sydow had his own existential problems, and that there were an endless series of reality breakdowns to, to yet to be discovered, and that. Um, the nature of reality was a, a kind of a cascading sequence of unveilings and and um, and then remaskings.
0: I get the sense that Jonathan Leatham is not as incensed by the Hollywoodization of Dick as I am, but he certainly feels that when Philip K. Dick is pigeonholed as some sci-fi writer who was merely ahead of his time, the true genius of what Dick has to offer us is more often than not totally missed.
4: You know, Dick was not a really a predictive writer. He ends up seeming so incredibly ahead of his time, and certainly um, we are living in his world right now, uh, seemingly much more than, than than when he wrote the book, so it can make him seem like a kind of visionary. But I think the truth is that what he did was begin to name with his Images and metaphors and, and concepts with the paradoxes that he described, he began to give create a language, a series of labels and names um for experiences that you know contemporary reality has made so universal um but w- which were so hard to describe before you know he he came along and um in a lot of cases he was just taking the the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties and the Texture of the, the world he saw around him, and just exaggerating it slightly, making it ridiculous. But in doing so, he ended up describing its, um, it's, you know, the absurdest truth lying underneath the skin of it. Um, so the funnier the funnier he tried to be, the more the more truthful he was. What what I love about Dick and what makes him so personal for me isn't that he uh represents existence as a series of kind of paranoic existential crises. It's that he does that and then takes, takes that as a backdrop. And what he builds on top of the assumption that life is a series of paranoic existential crises or ontological crises is the sense that human contact and human intimacy and human meaning and creativity, small moments, artwork, a song, a poem, are themselves so valuable against the great universal emptiness against this great sense of um, you know unresolvable menace that that lurks behind human existence um, and are therefore to be treasured and pursued and you know cherished and handed from one character to the next as tokens and you know this is a very co- consoling vision, a very uh, humble one, a very homely and, and and yearning one when i when I find myself facing the void. I don't curse Dick for reminding me that this is what it's all about. I'm I'm grateful for for reminding me of the way to tiptoe away from the void, or to turn my back on it and pay attention to what matters instead.
3: September 17th, 1977. I'm Philip K. Dick. This is my speech. The title of it is If You Find This World Bad, You Should See Some of the Others.
0: In Philip K. Dick's novel Ubik, the dead are never really dead. Whenever one finds oneself missing the dearly departed, one simply hops on over to the moratorium and plugs in the speakerphone. So, Let's plug in and listen to the voice of Philip K. Dick, as he is also sorely missed. This is a recording he made in 1977. It's a tape he made of himself practicing a speech that he was going to give at a conference of admirers in France.
3: May I tell you how much I appreciate your asking me to share some of my ideas with you. A novelist carries with him constantly what most women carry in large purses, much useless a few absolutely essential items, and then, for good measure, a great number of things which fall in between. But the novelist does not transport them physically, because his trove of possessions is mental. Now and then he adds a new and entirely useless idea. Now and then he reluctantly cleans out the trash, the obviously worthless ideas, and with a few sentimental tears sheds them. Once in a great while, however, he happens by chance onto a thoroughly stunning idea, new to him, which he hopes will turn out to be new to everyone else. It is this final category which dignifies his existence. An odd aspect of these rare, extraordinarily valuable ideas, which puzzles me, is their mystifying cloak of, shall I say, the obvious. By that I mean, once the idea has emerged or appeared or been born, however it is that new ideas pass over into being, the novelist says to himself, but of course, why didn't I realize that years ago? But note the word realized, it is the key word. He has come across something new, which at the same time was there somewhere all the time. In truth it simply surfaced, it always was. He did not invent it or even find it. In a very real sense it found him. And, and this is a little frightening to contemplate, he has not invented it, but on the contrary it invented him. It is as if the idea created him for its purposes. I think this is why We discover a startling phenomenon of great renown, that quite often in history, a great new idea strikes a number of researchers or thinkers at exactly the same time, all of them oblivious to their computers. It's time has come, we say about the idea, and so dismiss, as if we had explained it, something I consider quite important, our recognition that in a certain literal sense, ideas are alive.
0: I mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's no longer necessary to write about why the world should pay attention to Philip K. Dick. It's already been done, and the mission has already been accomplished. Some of these pieces, however, like Paul Williams' 1974 article for Rolling Stone and Steve Erickson's 1990 piece for the LA Weekly, are wonderful aids in understanding the importance and significance of this literary visionary. My personal favorite piece of Dick's scholarship was written by Josh Glenn, the editor of the now-defunct magazine The Hermonaut. In his essay, Josh lays out how Philip K. Dick can help us not only make sense of our world, but cope with it as well. I gave Josh Glenn a call to see what he thought of my idea of St. Phil.
1: Well, of course, any, any writer who grows a big, full beard during their own lifetime is going to be revered as a prophet at some later <laughs> date. You just look at, you know, Jack Kerouac versus Allen Ginsberg. Everyone likes Jack Kerouac, but Ginsberg is some kind of holy, you know, saint-prophet-type figure. Or like George Harrison, the Beatle, kept his beard the longest, you know what I mean? Today, like when he died, people were just, you know, he was some kind of holy guru figure. People might have thought John Lennon was cooler, but George Harrison was some kind of saint. (laughs) Because of the beard. Because of the beard, yeah. And this is a theory that's leaping to mind, but... Dick, you know, that whenever when his books got all re-released in the starting in the, I guess the eighties, mm-hmm. that's what they would always show, right? Him with the beard or whatever. Mm-hmm.
2: Philip
0: K. Dick famously defined reality as that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. But this is by no means Dick's only definition of reality. There are many. Josh Glenn likes this one. Reality is not so much what you perceive, but rather what you make of it. This, he says, contains the kernel of Dick's wisdom, that it's possible to live authentically in a fake world.
1: When the world shatters around you into fragments, uh, fragments that cannot be put back together, uh, do you just sort of wallow in that misery? Some people, it's almost, um, you know, they enjoy that of how hor- how horrible that is, and they can wallow in it and be happy, uh, or do you try to do you try to heroically put it all back together? Um, but he says no, it's not it's not going to be possible. But the only thing that is possible, and that is hopeful, and that will give you you know something resembling the, the only thing that's possible after meaning becomes impossible. Whatever whatever version of meaning is still possible is the the endless shuffling through the fragments and the creative act of interpretation, and uh, you know placing these fragments of reality in juxtaposition to each other, that is your creative act. That's how you're participating in reality. It's a, it's a, it's a judo act, right? It's um, if you become convinced that that everything's artificial and that yourself is an illusion, you know, and that you have just over time sort of been uh, instructed and in socialized into cobbling together some kind of persona that is real and you suddenly realize that it's not real, that's an awful feeling. And if that, if you actually believe that the, the world around you, uh, things that couldn't seem more real, are themselves, for one reason or another, an illusion, again, it's you feel insane. It's crazy. But there is a way, in Dick, there is a way to find not only just sort, of, sort of a base-level survival, but also a, a real affirmative way of being in that world in a sort of, you know, I hate to keep using the word authentic, but, you know... Uh, the best possible way of living, yeah, is, is precisely this, is to sort of embrace the artificiality of it, uh, of everything, including yourself and truth. You know, once you have embraced that, and, and to say, okay, well, actually, the only thing that, that is true is this, is the truth that I, you know, invent.
0: Philip K. Dick was obsessed with two questions. What is real and what is human? For Dick, the world seemed less than real because more often than not, the people living in it seemed less than human. For Josh Glenn, if we follow Dick's lead and seek out what is authentically human, we might find what is authentically real as well. In a
1: science fiction world, you know, you can have androids who look and look just like people and talk just like people and can think for themselves and make decisions. So in what sense are they not a human? And he finally decided the answer was love and empathy. In his his world, in his uh, science fiction universe, androids, the one thing that they can't do is feel empathy for for another because they're androids. That's the human quality that they lack. And he felt this was that empathy and love was being drummed out of of people of americans in the mid-century he would he would say people are becoming androidized people were being pacified and uh put on tranquilizers and and everything from uh, you know public education to to television programming to the drugs that were prescribed by psychoanalysis was just getting everyone to fit in and uh conform and become more like each other and just uh, be automatons so reality for him, I think he, he uses, at one point, uh, was where he connects uh, the nature of reality and, and the nature of what it means to be human. He says reality is love. So in his books, even if he can't exactly say what the truth is, his characters can te- you know let themselves be drawn towards uh, you know, warmth and human emotion and, and uh, love. And they can kind of go in their gut instinct. You know, if, if faced with ten different choices of what's real, if, if one of the choices, which looks just as fake as all the other ones, somehow makes them sense that there's some love there, some emotion there, some uh, empathy there, then they know they can't be wrong in going in that
0: direction. That's it for this week's Theory of Everything. Thanks to Sam Wolf, Josh Glenn, and Jonathan Leatham. You can find Josh Glenn every week in the Ideas section of the Sunday Boston Globe. Jonathan Leatham's new book is a collection of short stories called Men and Cartoons, and his latest novel, Fortress of Solitude, is now available in paperback. Sam Wolf tattoos at chameleon tattoos and body piercing in Harvard Square. Make sure you visit us at toeradio.org. Where you can read essays on Philip K. Dick by both of my guests and listen to and download not only this week's broadcast, but outtakes as well. This radio program was produced for WZBC in Newton by myself and is distributed through the public radio exchange at PRX.org. I'm Benjamin Walker. Tune in next week for another Theory of Everything. Alt, alt,
1: alt.
4: Alt.